You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Trouble Is. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're glad that you're here this morning. Happy Mother's Day to all you mothers out there. You know, I think that you need to know that uh, we appreciate you, we value you, and we know that there's a lot that you do that goes unseen. And so it goes unthanked, and we want to encourage you. We want to encourage you that it's not in vain and that it, it doesn't go unseen because God sees everything that you do, and he sees what you do for your kids and those things that, that don't get it always acknowledged. And so we want you to know that you're making a difference, and we honor you today. So if you would please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. That's where we'll be studying this morning. Gospel of John, chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3, and we'll begin by reading our text, which comes from some various verses in this chapter. Starting in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who comes from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its message to us, Lord, for this good news of the gospel, the good news of what you, Jesus, have done in time and history in order to save us. And Lord, this morning, as we consider this text, as we consider our topic, Lord, we pray that truly what would come out of this is a greater appreciation of your love for us, Lord, of your truth, and of the joy that we find in you because of what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that you would build in us a faith which isn't just optimism, a faith which isn't just an assent to serve certain beliefs, but Lord, a faith that that is real and that translates into actions. And Lord, we pray that you would do this good work this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have been, for the past couple weeks, in a series called The Trouble Is. And in this series, what we've done is we've taken six weeks to address some of the toughest questions and the biggest issues that people have in regard to Christianity. And the way that we began this is that we put out a poll online, and we asked everybody we knew to share it, and we asked people in this poll, you know, what are the biggest hurdles for you when it comes to embracing Christianity? What are the things that create the biggest hurdles? What are the biggest difficulties to get over when it comes to embracing Christianity? And so in this series, we're addressing those things which people said, you know, this is what makes it hard for me. These are the real issues that I'm dealing with and struggling with when it comes to believing in Jesus or embracing Christianity. And our hope through this series is that we can hopefully remove some of those things that people have considered barriers or hurdles in the past and show that they're actually not hurdles or we can help you get over them so that people can put their faith confidently in Jesus. Just a quick run through for the schedule. So far we have looked at the subjects of the Bible. That was our first subject. The Bible, can you actually trust it? Has it been changed? Is it really trustworthy? And then we looked at hypocrisy for the people who say, well it isn't that I don't know what Christianity teaches. It's just that I know some Christians and I wonder if Christianity creates these kinds of people, then is it really a good thing? Next we look at science. Does does science 
bury God? Does science bury the claims of the Bible? So we looked at that. And then we looked at the Christ myth, that idea that Christianity basically plagiarized or ripped off or stole all of its ideas from other religions and existing myths. Last week, we looked at the issue of evil and suffering. Some people say, how can God be good if he allows evil and suffering in the world? And so we address that topic. And I just want to encourage you, if you missed any of those messages, they're all available on our website for free, whitefieldschurch.com. You can go on there, you can download them, you can listen to them, and you can share them with other people because maybe one of these things isn't a particular issue for you, but you know somebody for whom it is. And so we encourage you to go on there, share these messages, get them out there for people who might benefit from them. Next Sunday, we're beginning a new series. You one of the things we love to do here at Whitefields is study through books of the Bible. And so we were doing that before. We took a break for this series, and we're going to start again next week with our study of the book of Romans, which is called Saving Grace. It's a study of Paul's letter to the Romans. But today we're wrapping up the Trouble Is series by looking at kind of the final issue, which is the issue of exclusivity and hell. This is a topic that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. They struggle with it. Even a lot of Christians are uncomfortable with this topic. People ask the question, you know, there are a lot of uh, religions in this world. How can Christianity claim to be the one and only way? And, and how could a good God send people to hell forever? Is he really good if he does that? And it, does that even make any sense? Today we're going to talk about these questions. Questions and, and more, and we're going to see what Jesus had to say, and we're going to see if we can make sense of some of these things and find a way forward to these questions that we and other people have on these topics. So let's uh, do that. I want to begin by talking about the theology of Ricky Bobby. Do you guys know who Ricky Bobby is? Talladega Nights. He's a NASCAR driver. It doesn't really exist. It's just a, just a movie. So several years ago, there was this movie that came out called Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. It's just a, it's a dumb comedy movie. Uh, I don't recommend it. It's a complete waste of your time, okay? It's a, about a professional race car driver. But I watched it on an airplane. I used to travel a lot to Europe and back, and so I would sit on these airplanes. And what I love about airplanes, I love several things. I love having to sit in one place for 12 hours because I'm like so uh, scatterbrained, right, that it helps me to sit in one place for 12 hours. The other thing I like is I love the food. I know that people don't think that's, that anybody does, but I really like airplane food. Like, I'm that guy who sits next to you on the airplane and I ask you if I can finish your food. I actually did that on a recent flight I took. But here's the other thing I like about flights these long flights is the movies because the thing about the movies on these airplanes is that they're edited down. They cut out all the questionable stuff because they don't know if children are going to be watching them and all that. So you get these movies that start out and they're, it's like a three-hour movie, but by the time you're done, it's like 37 minutes. And half the plot doesn't make any sense because they had to cut out some really important parts, but you can get through a lot of movies really quickly. So anyway, I saw an edited version of this movie, which was funny because then I got home to Hungary uh, after I had taken this trip and I told my wife, I said, hey, you got to see this movie it's funny and we watched it and she was horrified she's like why are you making me watch this movie it's full of profanity and all kinds of lewdness and I'm like not the version I saw the version I saw was 26 minutes long and it didn't have any of that stuff in it but here's the thing I want to tell you okay in, in, in this movie, Ricky Bobby, Talladega Nights, right? The main character, he's this NASCAR driver. And, uh, and at one point, he, he's in a race and he crashes his car and he thinks that he's on fire. And so he gets out of his car and he takes off his suit and he's running around the track in his underwear. And what does he say? Here's what he says. He says, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft to get the fire off of me, help me Oprah Winfrey. And I just want to say, like, 
as silly as that is, it's actually a pretty decent social commentary. Because what he's speaking of, that's like an actual theology that people commonly have. And so I call it the theology of Ricky Bobby, but you might also call it inclusivism. Okay, inclusivism is Ricky Bobby's theology, and it's held by many people in our society. And it basically says this, there are a lot of good religions in the world, there are a lot of religions out there, and no one religion is any better than any other religion. They're all just different paths that lead to the same destination. We're all just climbing up the same proverbial mountain. We're just taking different routes, and in the end, we're all going to end up at the same destination. Another example that's often used to illustrate this is they'll say, it's like this. It's an Indian proverb that says this. It explains all the different religions in the world by saying this. Imagine if there were three blind people, and these three blind people had never seen an elephant before. And so you put them in a room with an elephant. You said, okay, I want you guys to feel this elephant and then tell me what it feels like. And so elephants are really big animal, right? Like too big for just one person to feel the whole elephant. So the, the one guy feels the elephant's leg. And so he, he says, well, an elephant is like a tree. It's round and it's solid and it's thick like a tree. And so that's what an elephant is. It's like a tree, tall and round. Another guy feels the elephant's trunk. And you, you ask him, well, what's an elephant like? And he says, well, an elephant's just like a snake. It's long and it's skinny. And, and then the third guy feels the elephant's ear. And he says, well, an elephant is thin and dry like a piece of paper. And the, and the conclusion they make is, well, none of these people are actually wrong. They're all right in a way. They just have a piece of the truth, but none of them have all of the truth. And that's what all religions are like. They're all human attempts to try and figure out something really big, blindly trying to figure out who God is. And in their attempts to do so, they get a few things right, but they don't get the whole picture. Nobody has the whole picture. And, and so when you see, for example, like these coexist bumper stickers on cars, a lot of times that's what these people believe. Basically this, all religions are equally valid. They're all equally true. They're just different people's attempts to make sense of the world and connect with the higher powers. So you can't just say that one is right. You can't say that one is right or any of them are wrong because that leads to all kinds of problems. To try and put uh, all religions in, in one bucket and basically say, you know, they're all equal. So whereas atheists say all religions are false, inclusivists go to the other extreme and they say all religions are true. But what they're both saying is they're all equal. They're all equal. And this viewpoint is very prevalent in the world today. Just a few quotes for you. There's uh, one rabbi, Shmuley Botik. He says, I am absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. Mahatma Gandhi said this. He said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. And then the great theologian Oprah Winfrey said, one of the biggest mistakes that humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths to God. And yet in contrast, to that, we have Jesus Christ who says, as we read in our text today, there's only one way to go to heaven, and it's by believing in him, and that if anyone doesn't believe in him, then they will be condemned. He actually uses that word condemned. In another place, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's another place in the Bible where the apostles are speaking about Jesus and they say, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So clearly this is what the Bible teaches uh, even though it goes against the grain of what is popular in our society today, right? So the Bible clearly teaches this fact. This is what we have to deal with. The Bible teaches that there is one way to connect with the God of the universe and that is through Jesus and that is an exclusive claim. 
And apparently Jesus did not get the memo that you're not allowed to do that, right? He was not being very politically correct. He's offending all of our modern sensibilities. But this is something we have to deal with. We either take Jesus at his word or we have to come up with a different solution. But if we're going to take Jesus at his word, this is what he said. If you say that there's only one way, then by default, and this is the problem people have with this, that by default, what you are saying is that other people are, are wrong. And that in our modern culture is the ultimate, it's the cardinal sin to say that somebody else is wrong. You can't do that. And so we have this desire, right? We do. And I think it's actually, it comes from a very good place. We have this desire that says, hey, why can't everybody just be right? Like, why can't, why can't we just say that everybody's going to heaven? Because that feels really good. It feels really good to say that, that that's the case. It does not feel good to say that, that some people are wrong and that not everybody's going to heaven. I don't like saying that. You probably don't either it doesn't feel good and yet that is what Jesus taught and so our first pushback in this dialogue for those of you who struggle with this issue of exclusivity in hell this is the first pushback that you have to to address is this that just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean it isn't true and I, and I say that as a person who who sympathizes with you in this is just because something doesn't feel good doesn't mean that it isn't true, right? There are a lot of things in this life that, that I wish weren't true, but they are. They don't feel good, and yet they're true. But here's the thing. You can't just go through life saying, I'm only going to believe the things that make me feel good. You can't do that. There are many things in this life that are right and true, but they don't necessarily feel very good. So for example, I would like to believe that I can just eat whatever I want and never exercise and that I will never gain weight. But the fact is that's not true as much as I don't like it. I might believe that I can just buy whatever I want and never have to worry about money. But the fact is that that's not true. If you're a boss, you know what this is like. Sometimes the right thing to do is to let somebody go, but it never feels good, and yet sometimes it's the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, that's what matters. What is right and true trumps what I feel in the end. And so that's our first pushback that we have to tell ourselves. Look, just because something doesn't feel good, that doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean it's not right. And so the next question is, well, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just coexist? And my answer to that is, of course we can. Yes, absolutely. See, there's a difference between cultural pluralism, which is that people of different religions, ethnicities can live side by side. They could be friends. They could be neighbors. They could be co-workers. We can get along and we can, we can be nice and like each other and even love each other. But here's the thing. There's a difference between cultural pluralism and metaphysical pluralism. Metaphysical pluralism is when you go beyond saying, I respect your culture to saying what you believe is true, right? So when it comes to coexisting or tolerating other people's beliefs, we absolutely should do that. In fact, we shouldn't only tolerate people's beliefs, but we should fight for their right to believe what they believe, to express themselves as they choose to. So we fight for their freedom, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we have to then take the step of affirming that what they believe is true no matter what it is. So one person put it this way. I thought this was pretty apt. He said, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with somebody, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you have to agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. So tolerance and coexisting are absolutely things that we promote as Christians and ideas, and we, but we don't take the next step to say that all convictions and ideas and worldviews are true. And here's why, because not all beliefs can be true, because they, especially when they fundamentally contradict each other. So in order to say that all beliefs are true, you actually have to change those beliefs. 
And so let's talk about that. And that brings our next point. Every belief is exclusive, even inclusivism. Okay, every belief is exclusive, even exclusivism. So Christianity, by the way, is not alone in, in making exclusive claims. So first of all, uh, let's look at a few other religions. Islam is an exclusivist religion. It says there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet and there is a heaven and a hell and the only way to go to heaven and not go to hell is by converting to Islam and following its five pillars. It's an exclusive religion. Next is Buddhism. A lot of people don't think about it this way, but Buddhism is an exclusive religion. Here's the origin of Buddhism. Buddhism began when Siddhartha Siddhartha Gautama, who's called the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, he was born a Hindu in India, and Buddhism began because he rejected Hinduism. He said it's not true, and he rejected the Vedas, which are the uh, holy Hindu scriptures, and he rejected the Hindu sacrificial system, and he said that none of these things lead a person to nirvana, but that he knew the one and only way to attain nirvana. In other words, uh, that's an exclusive claim. He's saying these people are not right, and this is right. So Sikhism rejected both Buddhism and Hinduism. So again, exclusive. Atheism is exclusive. It rejects all religions. And it says that they're all false. And it's actually impossible to find a worldview which is not exclusive. Even inclusivism, as much as it tries to not be exclusive, in not being exclusive, it's actually being exclusive. Let me explain. Here's the irony. You know, by, by being inclusivist, you actually become exclusivist. Because if you look at the words of Jesus... And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And an inclusivist person would say, no, that's not true. At that point, they've just made an exclusive claim. When they say, no, that's not true, there are many different paths to God. They're making an exclusive claim. And anyone who doesn't agree with them, they say that they are wrong. So what my point is this. Every belief is exclusive by nature. The only way to not be exclusive is to not believe anything. And so every belief is exclusive by nature. And so we, we have to move on past our initial hesitation about making exclusive claims. And we have to ask the question, okay, since all beliefs are inherently exclusive, then which of those exclusive beliefs are true? So at that point, we're actually dealing with the, with the real issue, which ones are true. And there are two issues that we have to deal with as to why they can't all be true. So number one, is there's a logical impossibility. And number two, it's an intellectual condescension. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. So logical impossibility. If different religions teach things that, that not only are different, but actually contradict each other, then they can't all be true at the same time, right? So different religions teach different things about God, about heaven, about hell, and therefore they can't all be true. It, for example, if I tell you that I'm wearing socks and you say, no, you're not wearing socks, well, one of us is right. Right? And we, we're not both right. And so that's the intellectual uh, impossibility of that. But the second one is, is one I think doesn't get a lot of press. It doesn't get thought about enough. And that is this. It is intele intellectual condescension. Let me explain what I mean. Here's the irony. Because in, in the attempt to not be judgmental and not offend anyone, the modern view of inclusivism actually is the most judgmental and most offensive. Let me, let me explain. Because it looks at all religions and says, you're all wrong, but you think you're right. And I kind of patronizingly pat you on the head and say, it's cute that you think that, but you're all wrong. And I am the one who is going to tell you which part of your beliefs are true and which parts are not true. Therefore, the person is saying, I sit in judgment over all religions. 
So I mentioned to you earlier, you can't say all beliefs are true without changing those beliefs. So remember that story about the three blind guys and the elephant? Like at first that seems like a really nice story, right? It's, that's a great story because we're, we're saying, hey, every, nobody's wrong, everybody's right. Let me explain to you why that's actually a very condescending and offensive story. And, and here's why. Because it's told from the perspective of a person who claims to actually have the whole picture who claims to not be blind and who claims to actually see things for how they are. So it's told from the perspective of a person who isn't blind and who can actually see the whole picture. And they say, I have the whole truth. All you other guys out there are just blindly trying to figure it out. That's incredibly condescending because, again, what you're saying is that you're the only one who sees things clearly, who can see that the, what an elephant is really like, and everyone else is just blind and trying to figure it out, and they might get some parts right, but you're the only one who gets the whole picture. And so you patronizingly, you know, pat people on the head and say, oh, that's cute. You think the elephant is like a tree or like a snake. That's adorable. The, the only way you can claim that all religions are true is if you actually take parts out that contradict other religions, right? So, so for example, then you find yourself in this place of telling people, well, some of the things that you believe about your religion are accurate, um, but I'm going to tell you why you don't actually understand your religion or why those parts of your religion are not true, but these parts are true. In other words, again, you're making yourself the judge and arbiter of other people's beliefs. Again, that's not honoring to people. That's not respectful to people. And, and so in an attempt to not be judgmental or offensive, you end up becoming actually more judgmental and more offensive. And I would say that the most rational and respectful way to deal with other people's beliefs is to just look them square in the face, take them at face value, and just admit the fact that either they're true or they're not true. And what we believe, either it's true or it's not, right? So Islam, if Islam is true, then Christianity is not true. We have to own that. That's a, the chance we're taking, I guess, right? And, and we, that's why we look at the facts and we want to know, okay, what is the truth? Where does the evidence lead? So if Islam is true, then Christianity is not true. If Buddhism is true, Christianity is not true. We have to have the integrity to admit that fact. We can't both be right. We believe very different things. And so is Buddhism true or not? Is atheism true or not? Is Christianity true or not? This is actually more honoring to those people and their viewpoints to actually take them at face value and, and deal with them on that level. And then we're really talking about what actually matters, which is the truth. And so in our text today, we have an incident in which a man came to Jesus seeking truth. And Jesus gave him some real answers, and either they were true or they weren't. But either way, this man couldn't remain on the fence about Jesus. And as we look at these words ourselves, the same is true for us. We, if we take these words as they are, we cannot stay on the fence about Jesus. So we read in our text this morning, this man's name was Nicodemus, and he was a Pharisee. Now, whenever, for many of us, when we hear that word Pharisee, it's, it's kind of automatically built into us, right? Like those melodrama plays where the bad guy comes on the stage wearing the black hat and we all say, boo, right? So we see Nicodemus came and he was a Pharisee and we're like, boo, we know that those are the bad guys because we know Jesus had a lot of conflicts with them. But here's what I want you to understand is that people at that time didn't think that way about Pharisees. They really liked Pharisees. Pharisees were like the rock stars of Judaism. If you saw a Pharisee in the airport, you'd ask him to sign your t-shirt and you'd ask him to sign your dreidel. And if you were a teenager, you'd have posters of Pharisees 
in your, hanging in your bedroom. And they were the elite group. They were, it was hard to get in. They were limited in number. And they were like spiritual athletes. And they went above and beyond all of the requirements of Judaism. And people looked up to them. And for some of these Pharisees, that became a source of pride and, and self-righteousness. But for other Pharisees, their hearts actually were in the right place. And this guy, Nicodemus, if you follow his story through the Bible... That's what it seems like. He's a guy who, he was a Pharisee, but his heart was in the right place. He loved the Lord and just really wanted to know God. He's the real deal. And so he comes to Jesus one night, says in verse 2, at night he comes to Jesus. It says that he was a ruler of the people. He probably didn't want to be recognized. He wanted to sort this stuff out. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, look, Jesus, I believe, I know that you are truly sent from God with a message. And so, Jesus, I want you to just tell me, sum it up for me. What is the message that you came to proclaim? Let me have it. I want to hear it. And so Jesus tells them in verse 3, okay, here's the core, here's the crux of the message which I'm here to share. And that is this, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then they kind of go back and forth as to what, what he actually means by that. And Nicodemus is like, can you clarify for me exactly what you mean by that? And so he says, Jesus says, okay, here's what I mean by that. Everybody is born to physical life at one point when they're a baby. But what you need to have happen is that you need to be born to spiritual life. You need to have a spiritual birth where you come alive spiritually. And how does that happen? Well, we go down to verse 14. And Jesus says, hey, let me remind you. Here's how it happens. Remember this story from the Old Testament. And now Jesus is going to refer back to a story from Israel's history. And he says there in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The story he's referring to is found in Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel are in the wilderness. They're wandering, and a bunch of poisonous snakes come into their camp and start biting everybody, and everybody starts dying from these bites, these poisonous snakes. And the people come to Moses, and they're like, Moses, pray to God that he would take these snakes away from us. And so Moses prays to the Lord and says, Lord, Please take the snakes away from him. And here's what God says. He says, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole. And if the serpent bit anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and he would live. Super bizarre story, right? Like very weird remedy. What is all this about? Like if you get bit by a snake, then you just look at this bronze snake up on a pole up in the air and you have faith in God's promise that he's going to heal you and then he does and then you don't die now I'm sure there were some people who looked at that and they said ah whatever that's dumb like that doesn't even make any sense like I'm not going to do that looking at some snake on a pole isn't going to actually do anything for you but then there were those of course who were willing and they did they followed the instructions and they looked to the bronze serpent and they lived and so now many centuries later centuries later here's Jesus and he comes and he says to this guy remember that weird story from when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and all the snakes bit them and there was a bronze snake on the pole he says do you know why that happened you know why God did that it was a picture it was a foreshadowing of me that's who I am that's what I came to do I am that bronze serpent because you see here's the deal you have been bitten by the snake you bear in your bodies the poison of sin and as a result we all have the same fate we're all gonna die but see God made a way for us to live Jesus who knew no sin 
He became sin for us and he was lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks to him, whoever looks to the cross with faith in God's promise that through his death we are made clean and we are forgiven, whoever looks to Jesus in faith will be healed and have eternal life. That is what it means to be born again. That is how you get born again. And that, Jesus said, is the only way for a person to see the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on. He says this in verse 16. And here's why God did it. He said, because God so loved the world, because God loves you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting, eternal life. But look at what he says right after that. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But then he says this, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this brings us to the subject of hell. So for many people, when it comes to the idea of hell, it's not only that they they disagree with it, but they actually find it to be repulsive. They say, no, that's a terrible thing to believe in. There are some people who say, that's a deal breaker. Like, I'm not sure I can be a Christian if I have to believe in hell. But again, I want to bring you back to the point that we talked about earlier. Just because something is not pleasing to you doesn't mean that it's not true. Not liking something doesn't make it not true. So rather than asking, do I like this or how do I feel about this, the more important question we need to ask is, regardless of how I feel, is it true? Because if it is, then then we have to do something. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there is no doctrine that I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and it is specifically from our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. So there are a lot of misnomers out there about hell. I just want to run through a couple of them with you, and then we're going to talk about why Jesus talks so much about hell. So misnomer misnomer number one, Jesus taught a message of love and grace, but hell was made up by other people to scare people into submission. So say it again. This is the first misnomer. That Jesus taught a message of love and grace, but other people came up with the idea of hell uh, in order to scare people into submission. Now, there are a couple of versions of this. So uh, you have the one version of it that says, you know, hell and judgment are really like Old Testament ideas. And the New Testament, it teaches actually against them. Jesus taught against them. He wasn't about that kind of thing. Uh, that's Old Testament type stuff. And it's not New Testament stuff. The other version of this, is to say, well, hell was made up by the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, and they made it up in order to scare people into submission. Uh, but here's the, here's the truth of it. Let me just give you a couple uh, fact points here. That most of our understanding, actually the majority of our understanding about hell, actually comes directly from the word of Je- words of Jesus himself and not from the Old Testament. Did you know the Old Testament actually has very little to say about hell? It, it talks about it in kind of a general way, but not in specifics. So the Old Testament you know, talks about hell very generally, but Jesus had a lot of things to say specifically about hell. And, and here's the other surprising thing. 13% of all of Jesus' teaching, 13% was on the topic of hell, judgment, the wrath of God, and half of his parables were about this. So clearly, what this means is that hell is not a peripheral issue. It's very central to Jesus' teaching. It's central to who he was and what he taught. So if you think that Jesus is a good teacher, if you would say, which by the way, the majority of Western society likes to say, Jesus was a good teacher. So if you say that Jesus was a good teacher, then you have to deal with this fact. 
13% of all of that teaching was on the topic of hell and judgment and the wrath of God, and half of his parables were about it. So to reject hell, you have to reject the teaching of Jesus. Understand this, it wasn't a later add-on. It wasn't come up with in the Middle Ages. Listen to some of the things that Jesus himself said. I'll just give you three examples. Uh, Matthew 25, here's what he says. Then he will say, he's talking about himself, he says, then I will say to those on my left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus says, some will be thrown into outer darkness in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark 9, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, then cut it off, for it's better for you to go into life with one, or go into the kingdom of God with one hand than it is to go with two hands into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So if we take a look at Jesus and what he said honestly, then we have to see there's a huge emphasis on the love of God and the grace of God, and also a ratcheted up emphasis on the judgment of God and hell. And so I want to talk to you about why Jesus talks so much about hell. But first, let me address one other misnomer. Another misnomer is this, that hell is somehow unfair or unjust. Right? Someone might argue that the punishment doesn't fit the crime, that hell is too heavy-handed. Here's what's interesting about that. For the majority of people throughout history and the majority of people today who live outside of our kind of Western bubble, they have had no problem except this hasn't been an issue for them accepting the, the idea of hell because people throughout history and people in the non-Western world tend to feel that in order for God to be good, in order for God to be just, in order for things to be fair, then hell must exist. See, it's a very recent thing, and it's a very Western phenomena to question whether or not hell is just or fair. Let me give you an example. Miroslav Volf, he is a Croatian-born Christian theologian. He currently teaches at Harvard School of Divinity. This is a high-level guy. But he grew up in Croatia, and in the 1990s, he witnessed the, the bloody Balkan Wars that took place in Croatia and Bosnia. That was his home. He witnessed it firsthand. And here's what he has to say about this topic. He says this, It takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the idea that God should refuse to judge. In a scorched land soaked by the blood of the innocent, that idea invariably dies. And as it does, one will do well to consider the other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. And by the way, when he uses liberal, he's not talking liberal like we think a political conservative liberal. He's just talking about the Western mind, the Western liberal mind. In other words, when you come face to face with evil and injustice you naturally cry out for justice. So when you, when you see in the world the fact that so many horrendous things are done, like sexual assaults, abusing children, crimes against other people, violence, crimes against humanity, and yet they never go punished. Somebody massacres a whole bunch of people, and then let's say they kill themselves. Was the justice done? No, justice was never done in that case. You know why? Because all of us die. So it's like you look at Hitler or Stalin, people who in their lifetimes murdered millions of people, and they basically got away with it. And sure, they died, but hey, everybody dies. That, that isn't justice. There's no more justice in that than there is in the death of anybody else. And so where is the justice? Isn't there more justice than that? Is there justice in the world? And Miroslav Wolf and, and the Bible, they say, yes, there is. And, and that actually brings a sense of comfort and a sense of, of peace to know that there is a God who sees everything. And in the end, he will be just. In the end, justice will be done. 
Now you might say, well, wait a second, that's still unfair because what you're saying is that let's say somebody lives a perfectly good life but they don't accept Jesus and then they go to hell and then they get the same punishment as Hitler and Stalin? How is that fair? And the answer to that is, well, no, they don't. The Bible doesn't actually teach that. Uh, Jesus taught, and if you go to Matthew 11, you see that Jesus is speaking to a whole bunch of people in different cities. And here's what he says. He says, woe to you. It will be more tolerable for these other people on the day of judgment than it will be for you. In other words, Jesus is alluding to the fact that there will actually be varying degrees of suffering and punishment in hell. And so it would, it would seem that not everyone receives the same level or degree of, of punishment. So furthermore, uh, another thing that we, we know about Jesus' teaching is that the chief variable in both reward and judgment, is knowledge. So what did you know and what did you do with it? And he tells us that we will be judged more harshly if we know more, right? So people will be judged and rewarded based on what they knew and what they did with what they knew. And so my point is just to say this, it would seem that judgment is not a one-size-fits-all thing. So several times, hell is described as outer darkness. It's described as being cut off from the presence of God. And I want you to understand, this is what makes hell, hell. If God is the source of everything good that exists, if he's the source of all joy and all pleasure, music, art, water, food, everything that's enjoyable, hell is essentially the removal of God's presence, which includes the removal of everything good. And so if you remove everything good, all you're left with is everything bad. And that is what hell is. Hell is the full experience of the person who has pushed God away and told God, I don't need you. I don't want you in my life. And when the source of good is removed, all that's left is what is bad. And here's the last thing I want you to know about what the Bible has to say about hell, and that is this. God doesn't desire that anyone would go to hell. Do you know that? That God does not desire that anyone would go to hell. And it's essentially, it's been put this way before, that, that Jesus, God so much does not desire that anyone would go to hell that he said, the only way you're going to get there is over my dead body. The Bible tells us that God desires for all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, it is a tragedy for God. It breaks the heart of God when someone rejects him and persists in rejecting him and the salvation that he has offered them in Jesus Christ. It's a very interesting thing that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25. In this passage about Judgment Day, he says that hell was prepared for who? For the devil and his angels. In other words, hell wasn't originally created for people. But when people reject God in the way that the devil rejected God, then this is where that rebellion leads. It leads away from the presence of God forever. Now you might ask this question. If Jesus came to show us the love of God, then why did he talk so much about hell? And here's the reason. Because Jesus came to save us from hell. Jesus came to save us from hell. And it's only in understanding the extent of what he came to save you from that you can begin to grasp how much he loves you. Unless you understand what he came to save you from, you will not be thrilled, you will not be overwhelmed by the grace of God. And the message of Christianity is that God loves you so much that he made a way for you to be saved. Jesus Christ came and he died for your sins and he took the judgment so that you could be rescued, so that you could be saved. So that rather than eternal darkness and suffering away from the presence of God, you could have light and life and joy forever. The reason Jesus talks so much about hell is so you would understand how urgent this is. It's so you would understand how foolish it would be to reject the offer of grace and salvation that God has extended to you in Christ. And so just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that all who look to him and put their faith and their trust in him would have eternal life. 
Because God loves you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so in concluding this whole series, I want to challenge you today. Maybe there are some of you who have been on the fence about Jesus for a while or about Christianity. And I want to tell you, now's the time. We've gone through all these things. We've answered all these questions. Now it's time to get off the fence. It's time for you to put down your yes and to embrace the gospel and say, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Help me in those areas where I still struggle, where I still have doubts, but help me. But I receive your grace. I receive what Jesus did for me. I, and I look to that salvation and for, I, I look to you for strength to walk in your ways. Would you pray that prayer with me now? Jesus, we thank you, Lord. You said that the truth, that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. Lord, thank you that you have revealed to us the truth. You've revealed the Father to us. You've revealed to us the, the message of hope in the gospel. Lord, you yourself are the one who came to save us. So Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you that you've given us the truth and you've set us free in Christ. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who says, you know, I've, I've struggled with a lot of these things over the years. Lord, I pray that those barriers would be removed and that they would, they would no longer remain on the fence, that they would take a step forward and say, yes, I'm going to step forward in faith, and I'm going to trust in Jesus, and I'm going to put down my yes and go with him. Lord, we, we believe, but Lord, we do continue to ask that you would help us in our unbelief in those areas where we struggle. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy, and your patience towards us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.